This is The Big Jump, a podcast about human reinvention, featuring pro athletes who have leveraged their athletic minds for success beyond sports. I'm your host, David Gardner, a professional basketball player turned CEO of branding firm ColorJar. Each episode of The Big Jump features a professional athlete who has made their big jump to success beyond sports. This episode features Rachel Bueller Van Hollebeck, a.k.a. the Buelldozer, a badass on the soccer field and in the medical field. The Buelldozer, how great is that nickname? Rachel played for the dominant Stanford soccer program and went on to become a highly decorated athlete, playing in the pro leagues and winning two Olympic golds and a World Cup silver. A stethoscope now hangs around her neck where those medals once did, and she's made her big jump from professional soccer to working towards becoming a doctor, and she did so in dramatic fashion. We had the last game, and then the next morning, I got on the earliest flight possible and went to my med school orientation. Because of soccer, I've gotten better at trying to identify, well, what can I really do, and then how am I going to do it? Rachel floored me with her double life as she was often preparing for Olympic Games while also studying for the MCAT or applying to medical schools. We dive into the culturally iconic U.S. women's soccer teams, from being inspired by Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy, and Brandi Chastain as a 13-year-old, to then growing up and winning her own medals in front of 80,000 fans alongside Abby Wambach and Hope Solo. These teams inspired generations of athletes. Though there's still a long way to go, they started the conversation around equal pay for women's national teams, and they taught generations of athletes that there's no better compliment than to play like a girl. It's pretty cool to think that, you know, I could, I'm, I was part of that. I was often their favorite player because I was like into academic things as well. Rachel can be found on social media at Rachel underscore BVH on Twitter and Instagram. Let her know what inspired you and give a shout to at Big Jump Show while you're at it. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you're driving while listening or juggling fire, don't worry. We've got you covered with comprehensive show notes at thebigjumpshow.com. I want to say thank you to our sponsor, Grand Voyage, a luxury fashion brand and a personal favorite of mine that makes shoes and bags designed in LA and handcrafted in Italy. GQ says they're, quote, changing the fashion game. And I always say, if you're changing up your game, you better look the part. So use promo code THEBIGJUMP for $35 off the beautiful bags and shoes from Grand Voyage. By the way, my favorite item has got to be the blue burnished leather high tops, which are handcrafted in Tuscany, Italy. So go check them out. See what I mean? Yes, blue leather high tops. Go to thebigjumpshow.com slash shoes. And from there, as they say, the rest is up to you. And with that, I give you my inspiring conversation with Rachel Bueller Van Hollebeck. Great. Well, Rachel, thanks so much for being on The Big Jump. I'm super excited to sit down with you today. Thank you for having me. Where I'd like to start our conversation is with what's your earliest memory playing sports? I grew up in a neighborhood of a lot of boys. So we just played all kinds of sports in the backyard. Soccer, football, some games that we made up, various things. But I think all of it revolves around just kind of playing in the backyard with them. With them? Mm -hmm. And where did you grow up? I grew up in San Diego, California. What were your parents' professions? So my mom was a stay-at-home mom. She took care of us and was the ultimate super mom. And my dad um, was a cardiothoracic surgeon. Wow, heart surgeon. Heart surgeon, yeah, yeah. Did he bring that aspect of his life home or was it sort of a a stay-at-work kind of passion for him? I think, yeah, I mean, he brought it home, but in a good way, you know? Like when you're doing something that intense, I think it is just part of you. Um, and he would, you know, share stories about his patients and just really kind of, you know, you could tell that he was really invested in these people that he was taking care of. And I think that was a good thing, you know, seeing that growing up. Um, you know, we'd like watch heart surgery videos Really, yeah, as a kid, he'd like have to, you know, if he had like a complex case, he'd prepare, he'd watch like videos where he was, you know, going over different maneuvers and stuff like that. And we'd like sit on the carpet watching. Really? (laughs) Yeah. So, How old were you when you were watching these? I, I mean, as long as I can remember, I, I don't. It was just like, oh, I'm just going to watch whatever Dad's watching, and you know, just check it out. So, yeah, that's pretty young. Maybe part of the the gift of youth, where you can approach that with curiosity, versus now I see that stuff and my stomach turns. Yeah, and I was just like, oh, okay, this is cool. Yeah. <laughs> so you were you were interested in it from a pretty early age then. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I always just liked, well, medicine, especially from my dad kind of exposing us to it. And then, you know, science things, that type of stuff. Yeah. And did you, were you one of those kids who knew what you wanted to be when you grew up? I don't think so. I think, you know, I always just knew that I wanted to do my best and whatever I wanted to do. By the time I got to college, I think I knew that I wanted to be a doctor, but I was never the kid that was like, oh, I want to be a soccer player. Oh, I want to be a doctor. Oh, I want to be whatever it is. You know, I just kind of, I don't know, just kind of approach things how they came, I guess. What sort of sports did you play at the youngest ages? Soccer was my first organized sport, but I didn't really start playing. I remember my mom signed me up for something when I was like five years old and I hated it. I was like not, I didn't want to leave my mom's side. Like I didn't want to play. And then I think a few years later, she started me up in, in something else again when I was like seven. And then I then I just like took off. I loved it. And then were your parents, like what was their relationship with you vis-a-vis sports? My parents have always been awesome. They're super supportive, really kind of like no pressure type of parents. I think my mom was my first, where she was, my mom was my first soccer coach, though she knew absolutely nothing about the game and hadn't really played any organized sports herself growing up or anything. But she was just kind of the ultimate soccer mom and, you know, was getting the oranges and all that stuff on the sidelines and just the best cheerleader there was. So she was a great coach to have at a young age because she just was so supportive and so encouraging. That's pretty cool to have. From those early teams uh, playing soccer with your mom, around what age or do you have a, was there a moment perhaps when you recognized, whoa, like I could be pretty good at this? I think I realized I like loved it and wanted to be as good as I could be at it. You know, I don't know that I was ever like I could be on the national team. I really didn't think in that way. I don't It's hard to explain. I think soccer for me was always just this outlet that was like so fun, especially when I was growing up that I enjoyed it for that. And it wasn't probably until things just started getting more competitive kind of on their own that I started thinking in those ways, I guess. But probably I got much more serious about it, I would say, uh, junior high going into high school. Junior high. So around that time for you, when you were 13 in 1999, um, (laughs) the Women's World Cup, uh, the U.S. team played China Mm -hmm. in front of 90,000 screaming fans in Pasadena, California, at the Rose Bowl Stadium, which was the largest, largest audience ever. For a women's sporting event. Yeah. Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy, Brandi Chastain. So the game goes into penalty kicks. Mia Hamm pulls ahead 4-3. China answers Mm 4-4. So the U.S. has one kick left to win it. Brandi Chastain's up, scores. The iconic moment. (laughs) Rips the shirt off, right? Rips the shirt off, waves it above her head, falls to her knees. The sports bra moment. Yeah. You know, she goes nuts. Teammates go nuts. The stadium goes nuts. America goes nuts. Mm -hmm. Where were you when that happened? I was watching that with my club team at the time. So we went over to one of the girls' house and all of us were, you know, sitting there in front of the TV, you know, hanging on every penalty kick like everybody else was in the U.S. And yeah, it was really cool to, to be able to see that be with my soccer teammates, you know, and just be all decked out in USA gear and kind of feel that pride in your country and and see the women's team do such an amazing thing. I mean, they'd, they'd already been good for a long time, but I think this is the first time they really got a lot of, you know, publicity for it. And it was really that that World Cup was the first time that I'd really watched soccer and especially women's soccer on TV. So it was cool to see that and have that kind of impact, you know, I guess my understanding of soccer and like what it could be for sure. What did it mean for you or what did it do for you that moment? Um, I think it was just, I think it was just a great example of, of watching these women do this incredible thing. I think, you know, I had never really watched sports to be honest much. My family was not like a sports watching family. I don't think I always really kind of had, had seen examples of, you know, those moments in sports and Um, And then to see women do this and women's soccer do this, it was like, oh, wow, this is, you know, this, this is something that I don't know if I thought like this could happen to me at that point, but I think I was just very inspired by it in general, for sure. Showed you an example of what's possible. Of what's possible. Yeah, for sure. And only three years after that, you yourself then were playing in the youth 
World Cup in 2002? I guess I was. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty short, a short distance where you, where you, where you close the gap. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. It, that all happened very quickly. I think I, I was a bit young on that team too, because it was, uh, I think I was probably one of the youngest players, but I guess I had qualities that the coaches liked. I've always been a very hard defender. Like that's my, that was my claim to fame. My nickname was the Buldozer. I don't know if you found that. <laughs> uh, the Buldozer. I love the it. Buell a takeoff of your, your, your then last name. My, my maiden name, Bueller. Um, How did that nickname come to be? Oh, uh, well, I think some of my teammates kind of started calling me it at one point as a joke. You know, um, we always have so many different nicknames for each other. That one's not an easy one to say, but they occasionally would call it to me. And then at some point on the national team, we were playing in Germany and somehow one of the German announcers like had gotten a hold of that nickname and he used it when he was like, com- like doing the commentary in, in German. So you, you know, you hear this German and then you're like, that's bulldozer. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so after that, then it like became more popular. <laughs> it's such a good nickname. And yeah. so you had a reputation that you earned uh, coming up through those youth national teams as being a very hard nose defender. Yeah. And I think that's what got me on that initial team was, I mean, because at that point I was not, I was definitely not the most skilled player. And I never was throughout my career. I mean, I I improved a lot and I really dedicated myself to like improving that part of my game. But I think that that quality of being like really strong defender, kind of fearless, that's, that's what I developed, you know, growing up with the boys playing in the backyard, just, you know, not being afraid to hang with, you know, my neighbors who were like guys who were, you know, three, five years older than me. And I think I had that as a kid and I just kind of kept that quality going. And that's what got me in the youth national teams and I think got me to the national team as well. And so you're, you're growing up playing on, uh, you know, in youth world cups and the youth national team, earning this reputation for yourself as the bulldozer, <laughs> willing to knock over anyone who got in your way. Mm-hmm. And you decided to play your college soccer at Stanford, mm-hmm. where you were a three-time captain of a very nationally prominent women's soccer program. You also, though, won many academic awards. What did you study in college? I was a human biology major in college. And so that was, you had your eye to do what with that degree? To become a, a doctor. Okay, yeah. so essentially doing pre-med. Pre, it's pre-med. It's a, well, I mean, there's, you know, you don't have to do pre-med after, but it is a good uh, major for pre-med for sure. So that's what you had your eyes, mm-hmm. your eyes set on. At that point going into college, I, I was pretty certain or at least highly considering becoming a doctor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you had a very strong college career. It kept progressing. And then in 2008, mm-hmm. which talk about not that much time, but only nine years after that Brandy Chastain moment, you yourself put on the the national team jersey. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first time you put that on? I do. Um, it was in Portugal with the national team in one of our you know tournaments leading up to that Olymp- in, in that Olympic preparation. And I think we played China, I'm pretty sure. And yeah, I, I remember that very well. So there are these almost mythical names in, in sport, you know, from that first generation with the Mia Ham, Brandy Chastain, and then the, the torch was kind of passed mm-hmm. um, on and away and, you know, getting into Abby Wambachs and Hope Solos. And so these women are your teammates. Yeah. <laughs> What's that like for you? Oh, it was awesome. I mean, they're incredible women. It was was such an honor to play with that group of women. I think the national team has always had such a high standard of character. The people on it are incredible people. And even from the beginning, when I was just a young one, you know, coming into the the national team, it was funny talking about Abby. So I was actually um, studying for my MCAT during a lot of that Olympic preparation time. (laughs) <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> We're going to need to back up there. Yeah. So you're preparing for the Olympics. So this is the Beijing Olympics. Uh-huh. And you're preparing for that, which is for many athletes, a complete myopic, obsessive <laughs> force in their life. And you're doing that and studying. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Did you feel like you were living a double life? Kind of, but I'd always lived a double life. Like that was always me from growing up in high school, you know, balancing youth national teams and 
my academics in high school to college soccer. I mean, that is how I kind of functioned, you know? So for me, it wasn't anything that different. I think I liked having another outlet that I was able to, you know, channel some intensity and and focus into besides soccer. But yeah, so I was studying for my MCAT during that time and took it like in July, right before the 2008 Olympics in August. (laughs) (laughs) Did preparing for, for those games, that tournament, you'd obviously been playing at a very high level since you were quite young. Uh Did it feel different? Sort of the atmosphere in the air, right? 2008, you know, the team, the women's team was coming off of gold in 96, silver in 2000, gold in 04. So you're defending, Mm -hmm. um, trying to bring home another gold. Did it feel different? I mean, it felt very different for me just because making that jump from like youth national team to the national team is an incredibly hard jump to make. You know, I was not necessarily expecting that to happen for me. It was kind of unexpected from graduating from college. I thought, you know, I was going to go on and become a doctor. And then all of a sudden I got brought in with the national team. And so for me, having that path and and kind of being there with them was just like, I don't know. It was incredible and also just like kind of shocking almost for me, you know. Cuz you were you're essentially prepared to begin studying and and preparing as a doctor. Yeah. And this other door opened for exactly, you. Exactly. Exactly. So to be there was just like a dream for me. And the level was really a lot higher. Like I had to improve very quickly. I was just a sponge, you know. I was sucking up every single thing anybody told me and just I I think the amount that I improved in just that, you know, few short months was like insane. What did you notice most about, you know, the skill gap or the level of play that you had to adjust to? I mean, I think the game was just a lot faster um, with all because all, all the players on the field are such high quality players and you're playing against very high quality teams. So the overall level of speed was a lot faster the accuracy with which I had to pass, you know, like an errant pass is not really okay on the national team level <laughs> where maybe if I made a mistake when I was younger, I was like, oh, okay, I can recover from that. But if you recover, if you make that, you know, bad pass, then somebody's going to punish you for it when you're playing at the, you know, full international level. So in so many ways, just the accuracy, the speed, the intelligence of the women on the fields, you know, it was just, it was incredible. So describe your role on that team and and how did it go? You had all this pressure in 08 for Beijing. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened? So my role was kind of coming in as a younger player and being like a support player. I kind of could play any position in the back line, which is what was something I think I brought and was one reason probably why I made that team because the Olympic rosters are really small. They're like 18 players. So to have a, a versatile sub as a defender is helpful. So I would kind of play whatever role I was asked to play. And often it was um, sometimes in the center, sometimes on the outside, left or right. And that is what I did. I only got a little bit of playing time. I played, I think, in one, well, one full game because one of our center backs was ill. So I got to start a game in the Olympics, which was like, I was, you know, beside myself and so nervous, but like, it was awesome. How did you deal with nerves when those would come? You know, well, a lot of different ways. I think part of my like pregame preparation always just kind of helped me to settle my nerves. I had some funny, my teammates would always make fun of me for like my pregame music, but I like to do whatever I would, whatever I could to make myself kind of feel happy and comfortable. So I'd often listen to Disney music (laughs) before I'd play. Do you have some favorites? Ridiculous. Um, uh, Little Mermaid. There was one. Uh, Kiss the Girl was what a song that I loved. If only people knew, right? You see <laughs> this intense, the bulldozer getting yeah. ready to take the field, the gladiator, and, you know, the little mermaid, Kiss the Girl is playing in the, in the Exactly. <laughs> yes. That's why my teammates really gave me a lot of crap for all that, but they loved it. But those type of things, like I would just try to get myself in a happy kind of frame of mind. Um, that was the only Disney song that I listened to on the regular, but that, that was one of my pump up songs, believe it or not, but that, and then just, you know, really listening to my teammates. I think when you're that younger player on the field and you're filling in in a role, you know, when somebody else has gotten sick and you just have to kind of do whatever you're asked to do. I just listened to whatever they told me to do on the field and whatever Pia was very great. She was an amazing coach for that 
Um, that was our 2008 coach at the time. And she gave me some very just like explicit directions and kind of simplified things for me. She knew I was nervous. and It was my first real big game. And I think she helped me be successful too with that. And what was the end result for your team? Uh, we Well, we, we won that game and we won the whole Olympics. So that was incredible to be part of. It's amazing. Yeah. Describe the, the podium moment. Oh, gosh. I mean, so the podium is kind of like what you'd imagine it to be. You know, it's just like incredible to be up there and have your national anthem playing. And I'm the kind of person that like belts the national anthem always. So to have that and I'm just singing at the top of my lungs and feeling so much pride. And for me, just kind of this whirlwind tour to get to the Olympics and to be there and to be able to contribute a little bit. And it was just amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Incredible. I just got a couple goosebumps uh, (laughs) thinking about that. It was awesome. Um, So then, you know, you you go from being kind of the rookie, the role player in Mm -hmm. 08. And then fast forward another three years and you're a starter on the 2011 World Cup team. Mm -hmm. So as you're preparing for the World Cup, where was your other goal, your other ambition (laughs) becoming a doctor one day? Yeah. So I had never really let that ambition totally go away. As we were kind of saying, I took my MCAT in 2008, right before the Olympics, and then that was going to expire because it only lasts a few years. So I think it was in 2009 or 10, I decided to go ahead and actually apply to medical school. <laughs> so my MCAT wouldn't expire <laughs> because I knew that at the end of this all, I still might want to be a doctor. And I wanted to kind of leave that option open for myself and make sure that I didn't let that dream that I'd always really wanted to do. Um, you know, I didn't want to let that go away. So I kept it alive and I actually applied to medical school during that time period. So one of the things I've been picking up in terms of patterns, I'm having these conversations with pro athletes who have gone on to do something else uh, as a next act at a high level Mm -hmm. is this notion of while you're playing, should one have a plan B or not? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. is it a no way? I can only think about one thing. I don't want anything to take away. Mm -hmm. Where do you fall on that? argument. I mean, your actions clearly are, are the tell here, Yeah, but I'd like to hear how you thought about that. I mean, for me, I, I didn't really think twice about it. I think medicine and academics is something that I'd always really valued. It was a big part of my identity. Probably, you know, growing up, it was as much of my identity as soccer was. And for me, it was just natural to kind of keep that going. I don't really think it ever took away from my pursuit of soccer. If anything, I think it added to it because I'm a person that does much better with balance. And it provided that that balance that I like and kind of thrive in, I think. In the 2011 World Cup, mm-hmm. uh, what are some of your memories from that? Oh, gosh. I mean, another incredible tournament. Germany was a really fun place to be. You know, I was able to be a starter, play in pretty much most of the games. That tournament ended more difficultly for us. We didn't, we didn't, we got silver in that one, which was a tough end. And I think, you know, that always clouds that tournament a little bit in my mind, but it was also an incredible experience for sure. You know, one of the things back to that 99 moment mm-hmm. um, in winning the World Cup, it seemed as though the US was ahead of other countries in mm-hmm. terms of how much women's soccer had progressed. Did you notice, had the rest of the world begun to catch up? Could you even see from 2008 to 2012 Olympics? I think so. I think, you know, which is amazing that women's soccer around the world has continued to just grow so steadily, but definitely, I think there are more and more teams, or at that point, even there were more and more teams that were really able to compete at the highest level. You know, back in the day, you couldn't say that about a ton of different countries in the world, you know, but um, there were new players kind of coming into the the fold at that point. The the parity amongst all the teams was just becoming much more, uh, much more even. Yeah. The 2012 London Games, mm-hmm. you know, gold, gold medal match. Yeah. Wembley Stadium, mm-hmm. 80,000 fans. Yeah. Set, the, 80, <laughs> set the Olympic <laughs> record yeah. for a uh, women's soccer match. Did it feel different for you to play in front of 80,000 versus 2,000 at Stanford. Well, <laughs> or however many were at those games. 
Yes and no. I mean, I guess when there's that many people, you almost can't even process it. When you're playing, you're so in the moment and so focused on what you're doing that that does all kind of fade into the background a little bit. And once you're like in what you're doing, if you're playing in front of 2000 versus 80,000, it's not as different as you might think it would be, you know, but you feel this just sense of energy and power. And I remember just looking up and like cameras were flashing everywhere and I'd never experienced anything quite like that before. You know, that was insane. Mm -hmm. So the end result. Yeah. Got another goal. (laughs) Back on the podium. Yeah. Did it feel different the second time around? I guess there could be a few ways of thinking about that. You played a much more significant role um, on the team. What was the difference for you in in gold medal uh, one versus two? You know, with gold medal two, I felt a lot of responsibility in that, like, tournament and build up and everything. And I think whether a good or bad way, I almost felt a sense of relief when we won the gold in gold medal too, because I just, yeah, I, I, we'd worked so hard and I felt like, you know, we should win. We needed to win. And when we did win, I mean, obviously there was the joy and all of that, but I also felt, I think because I felt so much responsibility that I felt some relief, which was an interesting feeling to experience when my first gold medal with, you know, 2008, it was just like pure joy. I was just like, oh my God, I'm at the Olympics. Like what? And this one was a little bit different, you know, for sure. You know, you, both the women who came before you, as well as your years had a lot to do with bolstering participation, popularity, and prominence of women's team sports in America. Mm -hmm. Um, what is that like thinking about that? Um, it's pretty cool to think that, you know, I could, I'm, I was part of that. And I was never like a big name, like known player, but even me, like, you know, even now as a, a medical student on occasion, a person will come up to me and recognize me and be like, oh, you were my favorite player. And, and they'll often, I was often their favorite player because I was like into academic things as well, which I think is really cool that I was a role model for other girls that, you know, care about academics and sports and all of that, you know, to be able to, to be a role model for anybody is a huge honor. And the fact that I was, is really special to me. After you're now playing in the professional leagues, Mm -hmm. um, in the U S what are those leagues like? What's it like being uh, a pro in, in the U S versus on the world stage? I mean, it's, it's pretty different. You know, I think it also depends where you're playing. Earlier, I was first playing in the Bay Area and, you know, these were startup leagues. So it was, it was much different than playing in the Olympics with 60, 80,000 fans. We'd maybe get like 2000 fans at a game. Girls would get paid very, very little money um, to play. And even as national team players, you know, our salaries were not great. So it was just interesting to have kind of this notoriety and kind of growing respect in the nation for women's soccer, yet still on the professional level, especially at first when I was first involved, it was very much a grassroots type of thing that we were involved in. And um, it was just different, you know? You know, you bring up salary and mm-hmm. earnings. How was that? I mean, so I will say on the national team, we got salaries that were debatable. You know, it, it's an interesting argument because I think I was content with my salary at the time. But when you look at we're getting compared, you know, paid compared to other professional athletes, it was very minimal. But at the professional level, yes, we were getting paid very, very little as well. So it is an interesting situation to think as the sport was growing, we were kind of becoming icons, especially certain players like Abby and them were really icons in, in culture. But the compensation was slowly getting there, but it wasn't there, especially at first. Although the girls now have made a lot of, lot more progress in that realm, which is cool to see them kind of standing up and pushing that further. There's been a big push, you know, with, with equal pay. What have been your observations around that? You know, here, here's the women's, you know, national soccer team again, leading the charge. So after the wave one of inspiring women to participate, to play, Mm -hmm. it seems like you know, wave two, perhaps of cultural change will be inspiring women to fight for equal pay. What did you see from your, from you and your teammates in kind of pushing for that fight to happen? I, you know, I was involved in part of that. And I think they, since I've retired, they've really continued to push that. And I think it's incredible. I mean, I think that 
women have to push for that or it's never going to change, you know? And I think we've shown now, especially with just the grown popularity of the sport that we do deserve equal pay to the male players. I think there was more of an argument, you know, years ago where they would say, oh, well, you're not bringing in as much revenue and, oh, you don't have the same notoriety, but I don't think that argument really exists anymore. So that's kind of gone. Certainly. One of the things we cover and discuss on this podcast is the idea of identity and shifting identity. During your professional career, you chose to change the name on the back of your mm, jersey yeah, from your maiden name to your married name. Yeah. Talk to me about how that impacted you and how you approached that in terms of your identity and what you were wearing on the back of your jersey. Yeah, that's an interesting one because players approach that differently and some players don't change it. Some do. And, you know, I, I love my maiden name, Bueller. It's a good, strong name. And I was the Bulldozer. But also, you know, I had I met my husband when I was 19 years old. He'd been with me through my entire, you know, all of my college soccer career and all of my national team soccer career and had sacrificed so much and was such a part of my whole journey. And, you know, for me, I just felt like I wanted to honor that too and wanted to, you know, take take on Van Hollebeck as my name. So I'm all I'm always, you know, both identities. I think I'm Bueller and Van Hollebeck. And they're both good, strong names. So <laughs> yeah. talk to me about how you made your big jump from full-time soccer player playing professionally to what was next for you. I think it was 2010. I, is when I applied to medical school or maybe 11. I had been deferring year after year. And then in 2015, kind of preparing or trying to make that World Cup team, I'd had a lot of injuries. Soccer was just getting more difficult for me in a lot of ways. I think a lot of it was revolving around injury. But at some point too, you just find yourself shifting a little bit and like what you want to do with your life. And I think I was looking more and more to that next step. I decided to make that next step. And so... And then part of that was the 2015 team. There were 23 players to make the squad. Mm -hmm. It was down to 25. Mm -hmm. You were part of that. Yeah. So you uh -huh. had one more round. Of, uh -huh. <laughs> it was one more round. Yeah. I'm sure there's a diplomatic answer of, you know, when you found out that you didn't make the team. Yeah. What was it really like for you? Oh, I mean, it was really hard. Of course, you know, you, you obviously want to make whatever team that you are trying to make, but I had had a lot of injuries in that buildup period. So I'd been in and out with the team, you know, and I was kind of making this last push. I had just gotten healthy again. I was making this last push to try to make the team, but I think I had been out of the mix a little too much in that buildup. And, and there's so many good young players that, you know, as I once did, stepped up into the opportunity they were given. And, and so I didn't make that team. And obviously it was very, very hard for me, but you know, that is life. So, so that kind of led you then to go on and reassess, Hey, is this my, is this my moment? Is this, mm -hmm. is this time for me to move on? Yeah. And I'm always kind of a person that looks to signs like that a little bit, you know, I think going with soccer that kind of happened. And I think not making the 2015 team, I really kind of analyzed, you know, I'm, I'm only, it was at that point I was almost 30, only getting older, experiencing more and more injuries and didn't really feel like I was going to get much healthier. And you're playing professionally for Portland and at I was the time? Professionally for Portland. Yeah. Which was an incredible place to play professionally. Portland, by the way, is, is, you know, they have really pushed women's soccer forward in their support of the professional women's soccer. But anyway, so yeah, but at that time, I felt like it was going to be really hard for me to make the national team again, especially with the next thing being the Olympics and the roster being smaller. So I really started thinking, okay, well, maybe this is the time to jump on the medical school, you know, yeah. <laughs> train. I've been deferring for, I think, it, four years at that point. And you said you started to also feel some shifts happening mm -hmm. around that time, you know, mm -hmm. um, outside of not making that particular roster. Yeah. You still have a a professional team you're playing for. This is still your career, your livelihood, sort of all you'd ever known in that professional yeah. realm, but you were feeling a shift. Yeah. How would you describe what you were feeling? I think there, you know, being a professional athlete is awesome in so many ways, but it's also very taxing in a lot of ways. You have very little control over your own life, your own schedule, traveling constantly. I think, you know, I'd been married for several years at that point and 
kind of that, that all those other things that, you know, maybe you don't mind as much when you're younger and you're kind of excited about, they were just wearing on me more. And I wasn't excited to go on the next road trip. You know, it was harder to leave home. Just all those things were also kind of, I think, factoring in and pushing me towards a change, I think. So you decide, um, do you remember uh, who you told first? What I told my husband, <laughs> we've been talking about it though the whole time, you know, so I think he was always very clued into whatever I was thinking. And then I had to talk to Portland and, and UCSD about it. And I think I told them right around the same time, maybe even the same day, like, you know, I, I plan to come to school this year. And I obviously wanted to be very upfront with Portland and, and let them know my plans because I'm not the kind of person that likes to like hide things or anything like that. So I told them pretty quickly too. And and they were also very supportive. So, and then how did the how did the transition play out from you making <laughs> you know the big jump from playing your last professional game to then beginning medical school? Well, it was very quick, um, literally. So I had the last game of that season with Portland, and then the next morning I got on the earliest flight possible and went to my med school orientation. <laughs> So you're at med school less than 24 hours after taking off your jersey for the last time? Yeah, <laughs> it was. That was like a little, you know, I, I it, the timing just worked out that it was able to happen that way. <laughs> Would have loved like a few weeks off, but that just wasn't going to work out. <laughs> Did you eventually take some time to process the past? You know, I've been slowly processing it, I think, over the last few years, because now I've been in med school for I just finished my third year of medical school. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, that was, third year of medical school is a tough one. So it was, it, but awesome. It's really fun, but it's a good, uh, good year. But yeah, I think, I think for me, I didn't have the typical like period of kind of transition that a lot of people do when they retire from really anything. I kind of just jumped into this next thing, which I think was good and bad. I think it helped that initial blow that sometimes you get when you've stopped something that you love and probably the loss and depression that you might feel related to that. I had some of that, but probably less because I had no time to think about it. I was just on to like, oh my gosh, I haven't studied like this in, you know, however many years, like eight years, probably since I taken my MCAT. And I like didn't have time to really think about that too much. But I think as the years have progressed, I've I've slowly kind of worked through like missing soccer and just kind of processing it more, I think. What are some of the things that you miss? I miss the freedom that you feel when you're playing. I think that is such a unique thing when you're playing just totally on instinct and you're not really thinking about anything and you're functioning with your team in this like kind of just this way where you all just are in tune with what what's going on with the other person and that that flow that you get in, you know, that's hard to really have in many other things. And I think that's what I loved when I was playing. Yeah. Your reputation off the field was um, something that I found consistent with you is you're very sweet and personable <laughs> and a, you, know, you have a big smile and yeah. shining eyes. And on the field, you know, the the slits in the eyes tightened and you were willing to run anyone uh -huh. over. And I haven't tried to get anything past you yet while we've been <laughs> you know, hanging out at your house. Yeah. Uh, but I'd imagine you might knock me over if I attempted it. <laughs> How did you have such a sweet, charming disposition off the field and you were willing to take someone's head off on the field? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think still on the field, I was really tough, but I was always very fair and I was never trying to like hurt anybody or like anything like that. I think it's just like how I played, you know? Was it an outlet for you of this sort of base primal? Yeah, totally. I think, like I was saying, I, I love that instinct. You know, I love just not thinking and just playing and making that tackle. And I didn't even think about the tackle. Sometimes it just like happened, you know, it wasn't like I was trying to tackle the person. It, I just was there and tackling them, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, I, I love that aspect of soccer. And then also my teammates, you know, um, it was very special to be part of that group of women. And I, I miss being part of that and miss them. Although I'm still in good contact with a lot of them, but that's just a special group to be part of too. Yeah. What things did you gain as your time as a player that you've been able to leverage uh, now in medical school? Oh gosh, lots of different things. Soccer, you know, and sports in general are such, such a good teacher. You just have so many life lessons that you 
end up kind of experiencing. I think one thing is kind of being able to accept the things that you can't change and then change the things you can. I think in soccer, you know, there's a lot of things that happen when you're playing, whether it's like the ref makes a call, the coach maybe doesn't like you at the moment in time, and you can get so focused on some of those things, but it's not really worth it because you don't really get much out of that. And instead, I learned to try to not focus on those things and focus on the things I could change, like improving whatever skill it was that I wanted to work on or, you know, doing that fitness or focusing on marking my defense or my, my player exactly like how the coach told me to or whatever it was. So I think in medicine, too, and in life, there's just a lot of things you come across where you you can get frustrated about all these things that you really can't affect. And instead of focusing on that, I think because of soccer, I've gotten better at trying to identify, well, what can I really do? And then how am I going to do it? You know, what are some of those things you get frustrated with now in med school? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, Maybe you have an attending or somebody who you just don't quite jive with. And so you got to try to not focus on that and instead focus on providing the best care to your patient and taking care of them as, as best as possible. Or, you know, There's a lot of things in medicine that you just can't control, like a patient is ill and you cannot necessarily fix their problem, but you can make them feel as cared for as possible, you know, and so focusing on that and just doing your best with that. Do you have a vision for uh, what type of medicine you'd like to practice? That's a good question because I'm supposed to be trying to figure that out right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How do you go about that? Because, you know, that's something that all athletes, whether you, you know, you played in college or you played professionally, you come to that moment mm-hmm. where there's a big blank canvas. Yeah. Um, and you've narrowed you down a bit, yours a bit into medicine. Yeah. Um, but there are so many paths uh, one could take, especially when you have this amazing athletic background to leverage to sort of fuel you moving forward. Um, it makes the opportunities in some senses feel endless. Yeah. How have you been approaching these different paths? That is, I mean, I'm literally going through that right now, trying to, you know, going into fourth year, you have to figure out what you're going to do for residency. And it's been really hard. I think this is one of the first times in a a long time that I really have had a totally open path and haven't really quite been sure, like, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm supposed to do. Right now, I've, I think I've narrowed it down to family practice and um, OB-GYN. And I think that's because I am more of a generalist type of person, probably like balancing school and soccer. I like like variety. I like feeling, I guess, yeah, balanced in what I'm doing. And I think both of those fields kind of offer a good mixture of seeing a lot of different kinds of patients, doing a lot of different procedures, having a lot of different things kind of come across your path. So I think I've narrowed it down to those two because I'm more of a, a generalist as opposed to wanting to be, you know, like a cardiothoracic surgeon like my dad, that's a very specific thing that he did every day. And I I'm, think I want more variety. Does he have an opinion? He's great. My dad has always been the most chill, like non-opinionated guy, whether it was in sports. Like, it's funny when I was growing up playing soccer, he's like, Rach, you want to try karate? Like, he always just wanted me to make sure I wasn't doing something because I felt like I had to do it. So he's really not weighed in much unless I've asked him to. But I think he's just excited that I have enjoyed medicine. And and even that, he was like, you don't need to become a doctor, you know. But um, I think he's excited to see me become a doctor, though. Yeah, you'll be, you know, trading the bright lights from the field to the bright lights of you know, the exam room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are um, what are other things you think that you will leverage? You know, I like to think that you've earned an athletic mind, uh-huh. you know, which is different than a mindset. You yeah. Try on a mindset, almost like wearing a different shirt and taking it off if you don't like it. Uh-huh. Um, but my belief from more of like a, a neuroscience perspective is athletes have actually wired their brains in a permanent state. And that's an asset that you have moving, moving forward. Yeah. What things do you think will, will fuel you and serve you kind of with your finely shaped brain? <laughs> <laughs> Well, again, I think there's a lot of things in sports that you, you, I guess, practice and train and your mind to do, which you don't even necessarily think about. I think I've learned to become very adaptable through sports. And I think that translates well to medicine because you, you, in, in terms of like dealing with all different kinds of people from all different walks of life and being able to kind of adapt to whatever situation you're put in, I think 
sports does that via things that happen on the field, traveling to different places, playing with all kinds of different players, um, having to become part of a team very quickly. You know, each uh, in sports, I think in soccer, especially, you know, we had a core team, but we were always changing positions and girls would come in and out and you had to learn to connect with the person next to you very quickly. I think I'm able to do that in medicine. I'm able to connect quickly with my resident, my attending, the patient I'm taking care of. I think soccer and my sports kind of relationships have really helped me develop that skill for sure. Do you feel you're seen differently as a medical student? It's very competitive. Everyone is, you know, gunning for (laughs) residency of their choice and so forth. So I'm sure that competitive aspect feels familiar to you. Do you think people view you differently? I don't know. That's hard to say. You know, do you do you feel different? I don't really feel different. I mean, I think that like obviously everyone draws from their own life experiences, so I think those shape me in a certain way, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I've not thought of myself in that way. And you know, so many people in medical school have, everybody has interesting backstories and have done interesting things and challenging things. My personal experience is, is unique um and definitely has shaped me, but I don't think I feel that different. No. And a lot of, it's interesting. A lot of the people I work with sometimes, I mean, all all my classmates know my backstory, but when you're working with a new crew of people here and there for a few days, like people have no idea that I played soccer or anything like that. So um, that's interesting too, you know, like um, I'm, I'm just me, you know, understatement of the century that I played soccer. <laughs> but I, uh, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering what aspects of yourself are you currently working on? Hmm. I think I've always been working on this like throughout my soccer career too, but not being so hard on myself. I think, you know, having high standards for yourself is always, well, it's something that can be very good. You know, it pushes you to do your very best. But I also think there's a point where it's like not beneficial. And if anything, it can just kind of bring you down. And so I think I was working on that through my soccer career and I still am. And I think the lessons I learned through my soccer career and and kind of trying to give myself more grace when I made a mistake on the field or that type of thing um, helped me uh, now in medicine when I maybe don't quite do something exactly the way I want to. Obviously, I want to improve, but I'm also human and have to, you know, give myself a little grace here and there. Yeah, I've gone through a good amount of that myself. Yeah. Um, And I can be my own harshest critic. Exactly. um, Yeah. And and hold myself to a really high standard. Sometimes that's potentially not realistic. And Mm -hmm. it's tough. There is a fine line there because Mm -hmm. that high vision can be helpful um, in achieving more and pushing myself more. But then at times it can really put undue stress on myself. Exactly. Um, Have you, have there been any particular things that you found successful in helping to shift that dynamic to keep it in kind of the healthy zone? Yeah. And this is something I actually worked with a sports psychologist when I was playing. And then my husband actually reminds me of it constantly when I like, (laughs) you know, I'm talking with him about stuff, but trying to approach things more logically. Sometimes when I have like, you know, I've done something wrong, I have a really strong initial emotional response to it. And I'm like, oh gosh, how could I have done that? Or why didn't I do that better? And then when I step back and take a more logical perspective and analyze, okay, well, what really went on? what did I do? Was it really that bad? Like this presentation that I gave or something, was it as bad as I thought it was? And it was probably okay. Like maybe just wasn't my very best presentation or whatever. But I think just trying to recognize my initial emotional response, like not let that drag on too long and then intentionally take a more logical look at stuff. Mm, That's cool. I like that. I've approached it from more of a emotional angle Mm -hmm. and thinking about what does... 10 year old David need right now. Mm, yeah, that's um, interesting too. And asking that question and thinking about um, kind of growth as sort of like as a tree grows, it gains mm-hmm. more rings. Mm. And so knowing that the David from three years ago and 30 years ago are also in there somewhere. Yeah. And so if I, I catch myself, and I think the first step is awareness. Yeah, that of, is always of the beat up. And so, yeah. Clearly, I'm not perfect at this. There are many times where I probably beat myself up for an extended period of time and then finally catch it. Even there, there's judgment in the way that I just (laughs) phrased that, right? Finally catch it. Um, So it's a constant battle. Um, When I do catch it, though, it's thinking about, am I being kind to myself? Would I talk to 
10 year old David this way. Yeah. And that's been a really great device for me. Yeah, that's great. I like that. And where I'd like to end is what advice would you have for the freshman year college version of Rachel? Probably tell myself to sleep a little more. I think at that point, uh, again, kind of, I think I was very driven in school and soccer, which was very good, but I probably could have like taken a little bit better care of myself in terms of, you know, not pushing myself quite so hard because I did not sleep a lot in college. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm wishing you as much sleep as possible for the the circumstances of your, your fourth year of medical school as well as residency. (laughs) Uh, I'm really excited for all that's more to come for you soon to be doctor. Yeah. Um, And thanks so much for this conversation. Um, I found it inspiring. Thank you for inspiring such a generation of young female athletes and really America at large. You're part of a cultural phenomenon and what an amazing first act. And I'm excited to see what comes from your second act. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It was an honor. You feel like a teammate. (laughs) uh, And this has been wonderful. Thanks. Great. Thank you. There are comprehensive show notes and links to everything and everyone mentioned in this episode at thebigjumpshow.com. If you're listening while driving or perhaps juggling fire, don't worry because everything and everyone discussed is all for you on the website with comprehensive show notes. Just go to thebigjumpshow.com and we've got you covered. Along those lines, I want this podcast to become its best, and I learned from sports that feedback is love and improves performance, so give me some feedback. I want to create better content for you, so tell me what you liked, tell me what could be better. The Big Jump is on Instagram and Twitter, both at Big Jump Show. And leave a quick review on Apple Podcasts because it helps get the word out about the mission to inspire someone's next big jump. And remember to subscribe if you like what you hear and might want more. There's a lot more in store for season one of The Big Jump and beyond. I want to say thank you to our sponsor, Grand Voyage, a luxury fashion brand and a personal favorite of mine that makes shoes and bags designed in LA and handcrafted in Italy. GQ says they're, quote, changing the fashion game. And I always say, if you're changing up your game, you better look the part. So use promo code THEBIGJUMP for $35 off the beautiful bags and shoes from Grand Voyage. By the way, my favorite item has got to be the blue burnished leather high tops, which are handcrafted in Tuscany, Italy. So go check them out. See what I mean? Yes, blue leather high tops. Go to thebigjumpshow.com slash shoes. And from there, as they say, the rest is up to you. This is The Big Jump, a podcast about human reinvention, featuring pro athletes who have leveraged their athletic minds for success beyond sports. 